Hello and welcome to the Folklore Podcast, an independent podcast which is part of the Folklore Network, aiming to collect and preserve folklore materials for future generations to learn from. I'm Mark Norman, folklore researcher and author. Folklore continues to enjoy a surge in popularity, which is probably driven by a number of factors, some of which we will discuss in today's episode. This is particularly the case outside of traditional academic institutions, through internet groups and discussion fora, storytelling, magazines and books, many of which we cover on our sister show, the Folklore Podcast Book Club, and in many other ways. Of course, this doesn't mean that academia is necessarily distant from the subject, but that can sometimes be a matter of geography. America offers many courses, Ireland has one of the best repositories of field-collected custom and law available. In England, much academic folklore study has been lost over the years, but one or two institutions are bucking the trend, maybe starting to realise the error of their ways. There is much to do, and we're fortunate that independent researchers have continued the drive in the meantime. My guest today is an academic folklorist who has produced, in my opinion, and in the opinion of many others, one of the most lively and accessible new books on the study of the subject for some time, Folklore 101. Gina Jorgensen studied folklore under Alan Dundas at the University of California, Berkeley, and went on to earn her PhD in folklore from Indiana University. She researches gender and sexuality in fairy tales and fairy tale retellings, folk narrative more generally, trauma, body art, dance, sex education, and feminist queer theory. She joined me recently to discuss the study of folklore and her approach to it. So Gina, welcome to the Folklore Podcast. It's great to have you along. Thanks for having me. Ah, it's my pleasure, my pleasure. So before we launch into this and talk a little bit about um, your ways of working with folklore and your book, Uh, Folklore 101, which is a kind of um, really good introduction across the board for people who who want to look at this subject. Um, Let's talk a little bit about you first, if we may. Tell everybody a little bit about who you are and what you do. Well, I grew up in the Los Angeles area in California, and I did my undergraduate um, degree at UC Berkeley, and I went in thinking, I want to be a writer, so maybe I'll major in history, become a history teacher by day, writer by night, I'll figure it out. And my first semester, I took a couple of different classes. I took an introduction to religious studies, an introduction to linguistics, an introduction to cultural anthropology, and a freshman seminar on fairy tales. And by the time I finished that semester, I was like, I want all of these things wrapped together as one thing forever. And that's when I found out what folklore was. So luckily for me, Alan Dundas was the main folklore professor at UC Berkeley. But before I took a class with him, I actually took a summer course with Ulo Volk, who's an Estonian folklorist, who was a visiting professor at Berkeley. And the class was comparative demonology. And that was such a cool class. It just, it really sealed the deal. So by the time I entered my second year of undergraduate study, I, I knew I was a folklorist. I knew I was drawn to the study of me and every kind of folklore. 
in large part because I would never be bored. There's just, there's always more folklore, whether it's old or new or from here, or from there. And so I decided to pursue a PhD in folklore and I went to Indiana University for that. And coming from Berkeley, where I was very much more immersed in um, texts and library research, going to IU, I got to study with some really wonderful people who do field work, such as Henry Glassie and Pravina Shukla and so on. So that really molded me into more of a well-rounded folklorist. And I don't do as much field work as I would like to these days, but it's still something I'm very interested in. So finding that balance between more textual and literary research and field work, anthropological, active out there research. So that's kind of how I got started as a folklorist. These days, I'm a full-time lecturer at Butler University in Indianapolis, Indiana. And while I don't technically get to teach folklore classes all the time, I do a lot of stealth folklore. So if we can run something on fairy tales, on global folk narrative, on material culture, on folk music, on folk dance, that material often finds its way into my classes, which is quite fun. I'm all for stealth folklore. <laughs> That's a great approach because it is at the end of the day everywhere. You know, it does pervade our lives in, in every way. So, you know, it, it should be in every course. Exactly. Yeah. And you're in a fortunate position as well in the States that is that you do have a lot of institutions that, that do run courses which work with folklore. You know, it's something that in the UK we we're a little bit lacking in these days, certainly compared to how it used to be. So um it's good to know that it is still strong over there at least. Now um your book, Folklore 101, is exactly what it says in the title. It is, you know, a, a broad introduction to the field of folklore. Um, and I want to pick up on a couple of points that you mentioned in your introductory spiel there, um, which also come up in the book as well. But before I do, the introduction to your book poses one question. Your introduction is subtitled, What is Folklore and Why Does It Matter? Uh, so I'm going to ask you that $64,000 question to start with. From your own definition, because everybody has their own, what is folklore? I actually like to lean on Lynn McNeil's definition of folklore is informally transmitted traditional culture. So that is very much where I'm coming from as well. It is all of the parts of culture that are not institutional and formal and mandated and lawful, but rather those parts of culture that are informally passed along, we might say, peer-to-peer, um, face-to-face. It's not always in person necessarily, plenty of internet folklore, but it's those parts of culture which are shaped more by social consensus and communal group identity rather than passed down hierarchically from an authority. Of course, there is still hierarchy in folklore. In, in any folk group, you'll have some sort of, sort of social organization. But folklore as a whole is passed on within groups that are organized uh, by different means than here is an institution, here is the HR handbook, here is the law. So it is just a different way of organizing and thinking about culture that, that usually sorts into a couple main areas, um, verbal folklore, folklore passed on by words and sounds and so on, customary folklore, things that we pe people do, actions, beliefs, and so on, and the material culture or more the physical side things people make. So that's about as brief as I can make it while, while building on Lynn McDeal's definition that I like. 
Lynn, of course, has been on this podcast in the past as well um, and, and looks a lot at digital folklore, obviously, which is something that I want to come back to in just a second. Before I do, address the second part of your introductory title for me. Why does folklore matter? Yes, I have a few thoughts on that. First, folklore matters because it's something that we all engage in on a daily basis. And I think it's worth understanding the sort of on the ground experience of people in general. You don't have to be a Hollywood star or a famous writer or a famous artist from the past or present to mean that your life matters. So I think that studying the daily lives of people is just really important. And folklore is an inherent part of that. I also think folklore matters because um, going back to the definition of informally transmitted traditional culture, because folklore is usually non-institutional, although it's found in institutions such as workplace humor and things like that. Um, there's no law saying you have to do folklore, you have to tell jokes or else you're going to go to jail or whatever. So because folklore is not institutionalized in the same way as other aspects of culture, which will perpetuate themselves regardless of how much people like them. Um, I think the studying folklore gives us important insights into what people actually believe and actually do and actually want to spend their time doing and thinking about and eating and which stories they want to tell. So I think in part because folklore is often so pervasive in our lives without being mandated and heavily analyzed, unless you are a folklorist, it can give us even more insight into what people do essentially when no one's looking. So it's those parts of everyday life. Um, my mentor at IU, Praveena Shukla, would often define folklore as creativity in everyday life. So when you tune into those little aspects that people are doing because they enjoy it, because it speaks to them, because it resonates with them, that's like an additional layer of insight that you won't necessarily get by looking at top-down elite institutional forms of culture. Like, you know, I, th I think it's really interesting to look at, for example, pop culture, which overlaps with folklore in a number of ways. But I don't think you get the same insight into what everyday people are thinking and believing and doing, looking at something that is put out by like a media company. Yeah, yeah, you're absolutely right. Um, pop culture, of course, is, it tends to be more in the now in, in many respects, uh, not necessarily um, pervasively, but, but usually. Um, but I want to pick up on something you've mentioned a couple of times, which is um, you said right at the beginning about folklore, whether it's old or whether it's new. Um, and we went on to, to, to mention a couple of times digital folklore. Now, there, there are still people who struggle, I think, with the concept of folklore not being something that's old. Can you address the point from your perspective as to why internet culture, internet folklore, memes, these sorts of um, areas are actually folklore? Yeah, so I, I think back again to my undergraduate studies with Alan Dundas, and when we were sort of confused newcomers to the field. He gave us some simple criteria to help identify if something is folklore, and those are multiple existence and variation. So can you document this thing out in the wild? Um, there are multiple items or instances or texts of it floating around, often with variation. So 
if I am trying to look at something and think to myself, okay, is this folklore? Yes or no. And, you know, sometimes there's some gray area. Um, if I happen to find a published text like a book, there is multiple existence of the same exact text. There's no variation. Uh, you know, perhaps the same book is released 10 years later with a new author's, author's forward. But in general, the text is going to be word for word exactly the same, whether I read that book as an ebook, listen to it as an audiobook, buy it at a bookstore, buy it online, it's the same exact thing. In contrast, when folklore circulates, variation is inherent to the way that it's picked up and put down and created anew by anyone who encounters it. So when you see things like memes on the internet, you might be thinking, oh, this is too new. This is too digital. There's too much technology involved in this. But if you can document, say, in a in a meme cycle or something like that, the same as you would with a joke cycle with um, verbal um, joke telling, here's a text, here's a text, here's another text. Huh, they're all kind of variations on the same idea. Like maybe they're long cats or maybe they're ceiling cats or whatever it is. If you see that variation creep in with multiple instances of this is basically the same thing, which is another way of saying tradition, I think we're dealing with folklore. It doesn't matter if it has a digital existence or a verbal existence or a customary existence or a more physical world existence. Um, it's all folklore. Yes, absolutely. I, I, it, it almost reaches the point sometimes of being quite amusing. You, you, you know, you, you see discussion in, in folk horror circles quite often where people will talk about a particular film and, and you get posts on Facebook and say, is this folk horror? You know, and, and sometimes you, you can't just kind of squash it into a little definition and say, yes, it is. And no, it's not. <laughs> and I think folklore is the same and, you know, over a much broader level, isn't it? Yeah. Now, you're you're obviously approaching folklore from a um, from an academic perspective. Um, I personally don't like the term folkloristics, but some people use it for the academic study of folklore. But when we consider how most people see folklore, um, whether that's a stereotypical view of of you know it sitting amongst the you know the the rural classes in older times and, and those sorts of things, um, it very much is a subject of the people and and of daily life. Why should we study it from an academic perspective? That's a great question. Um, I am a fan of academic folklore studies because I think we have centuries of resources and scholarship and things like that to draw on that it's useful to bring to bear in these situations. And I think that, you know, sometimes have a academics have training in adjacent fields that helps them make connections and have insights and things like that. But I'm also I'm definitely in favor of, you know, you don't need a an advanced degree to study folklore. You can start to educate yourself and start to learn how it's done. Um, and another thing I think is useful in academic folklore studies is a corrective to some things that are sort of these popular misconceptions or assumptions about folklore. So for instance, a lot of people, when they first encountered the concept of folklore and they're enamored of it, and they want to go out and be the mythbusters and know, this is true. This is false. This never actually happened. Ha ha. It's just an urban myth or urban legend. Um, and I get that people, you know, get excited about that. Like it's, it's fun to kind of play a detective, but I think that in academic folklore studies, we're like, okay, we're going to put that question aside that is of limited use to understanding 
why it circulates and why it seems so powerful to most people. So I think we're just really interested in asking different kinds of questions that hopefully clue us into things about human behavior, belief, values, and so on. I think there's been a big resurgence recently in the interest in folklore, uh, not just from an academic perspective, but certainly from a lay perspective as well. When you when you think about um, you know the popularity of some podcasts, when you think about uh, hashtags like Folklore Thursday on Twitter and, and and these sorts of mechanisms for engaging with the subject, why why do you think there has been such a resurgence recently in in general interest in folklore? I'm still trying to figure that one out for myself. So um, I, I suspect that, you know, people always want to have some kind of meaning in their lives. They want to engage with things that are older than they are, that have some root to tradition, root, root or connection to tradition. So like one of my hypotheses about why Middle Eastern dance or belly dance, why they're very popular in America right now is that so many Americans are like, well, I'm one third Scottish, French, mixed this, that, and the other. There's a sense of rootlessness among many sort of European descended Americans. So I think there's this desire to kind of tap into something that has more of an obvious connection to a tradition. So I think there's there's maybe, there's some of that. Um, yeah, I don't know. I'm still kind of puzzling over that, like how much the role of Folklore Thursday maybe helped popularize things if, if they were already getting popular and they just put a name on it. So I don't I don't really know. I, what do you think? Do you, I, I wonder whether in some respects it's connected to the need for a sense of nostalgia recently. I, I think that maybe a lot of people in the last few years have just looked around them and gone, do you know, I can't find meaning from the world generally because it's all just a bit rubbish mm. and they look for that meaning elsewhere and it and um maybe it harks back to to uh, you know wanting to look back to those kind of more nostalgic roots uh, the, the the was a hypothesis it's largely discredited i suppose these days um surrounding the kind of jungian collective folk memory approach um with folklore I, what are your views on that do you think that has any bearing on how people relate to what's around them i'm not a fan of jung um I, I mean, I'm sure part of it is that Dundas was a huge Freudian, so I kind of got that socialization as an intellectual more than the other side of things. Um, so yeah, I don't really buy into the collective unconsciousness or archetypes or things like that. Um, I think people are drawn to the idea of them. People love this idea of tapping into stuff like that, um, regardless of whether there's any truth to it or underlying I hate to use the word authenticity if I don't have to, but that sort of thing. But yeah, I agree. People people want some something that feels authentic in their lives, and folklore might be a way of going about that. I mean, I, I really don't think that folklorists are good at doing public outreach as much as we should be. It's changing. It's getting better. But I think I, I was one of the first people to have a, a folklore blog uh, back in the day, like a, a decade ago. Um, so I, I think that folklorists, like those of us who are scholars and working on being scholars, could probably do more outreach to kind of help with that. But I don't know. Maybe we should just shouldn't question too strongly why there's this resurgence in interest. Maybe we should just go with it uh, and and kind of work with it and help it on its way. I hope perhaps we're all doing that a little bit. Sure. 
You work quite a bit with fairy tales in um, in your work, and and you know in the, in the subject areas that you you described yourselves as looking at as as you came up through your own study. Mm-hmm. Why are they still relevant to people today? I have so many thoughts on this. Um, I designed the fall semester of my first year seminar um, around this exact question. Um, so I think that fairy tales are still relevant today in part because Disney made them relevant and built a media empire on selling this very saccharine, happily ever after fantasy to people with books and dolls and costumes and theme parks in addition to the films, as well as I'm sure a million other things I couldn't even name. Um, so in part, I think that just pop culture is awash with them. Um, and there's this interesting paradox that uh, in folklore studies we call the triviality barrier, which is when something seems really trivial or not important, or it's like, oh, it's just that stuff over there. Um, oftentimes it gets neglected by serious scholars, but at the same time, it usually says really important stuff about us and who we are. So I do think fairy tales are on the one hand, very prevalent in pop culture right now. On the other hand, they're very marginalized because it's it's girly stuff. And, and I think that despite the advances of modern feminism, America at least remains a thoroughly misogynist society. And thus girly stuff is really looked down upon. So I think that's one aspect is the whole very prevalent, but also kind of trivialized thing going on. Um, another aspect is that Fairy tales do this weird little trick where they are explicitly fictional formulaic narratives. We, we know going in that they are not true. Once upon a time, never happened. We're not talking about real kings and queens. We get that. And despite how imaginary they are, they manage to communicate very deep human emotional truths. So I think that a lot of fairy tales, you know, especially if you go beyond the Disney versions, you will see a lot of tales that are about struggling, about trauma, about family, about belonging. So many aspects of human experience packed into these very strange little fantastical stories. So I think it's something that we keep coming back to because for almost any human situation, you can find a fairy tale that either speaks to it or re- rework the fairy tale to speak to it even more. And I think that has a definite um, appeal to people. And of course, the Disneyfication of, of these things is, is nothing new, I suppose, either, is it, in a way? You know, it's the, 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 the whole concept of, of fairies looking like Disney's version of Tinkerbell goes back earlier than that with the Victorian flower fairies and, mm-hmm. and you know I, I think you know that that period of history as well has a lot to answer for in, in kind of reshaping a lot of these stories doesn't it and introducing I suppose in many ways that kind of morality uh concept to them as well you, you here's a story that teaches you why bad things will happen if you don't lay off drink go to church on a Sunday and, and all of the other things that you know were, were important at that time yes uh, let me turn, if I may, to your book, Folklore 101, which I absolutely adore, as I was saying before. Um, you know, I've been working with folklore for years and I learned so much from your book. Um, and I think anybody, whatever level they're working at, would find the same thing. 
tell me a little bit about the ethos behind this book, why you wrote it, and kind of the approach that you're taking in your introduction to the subject. Yeah, so I have been writing in various formats for uh, a long time. I have been blogging, I publish my research in academic article form, I write fiction and poetry too, and I have really been struggling with the idea of whether I should write an academic book because in academia in America, at least, uh, you are supposed to get your tenure track professorship right out of grad school, write a book that gets you tenure. Okay, moving on. But I've been in academic publishing long enough to know that uh, it's a very weird system where academic authors, whether you're writing an article or a book, you are supposed to write the thing for free and you publish it, and maybe you see like a tiny amount of royalties here and there, but you're essentially getting paid in prestige so that that book's publication can go on your record and you can get tenure or promotion and all the things. Um, I've never had a professor position. Academia in America is in a slump and has been for a while. There just aren't enough jobs to go around. So while part of me loves the idea of getting really deep into some theoretical stuff that only 50, in the, 50 people in the world want to read. Part of me is like, that'd be so cool. It'd be so nerdy. I love it. But I'm like, well, why would I sink two or three years of my life into writing a book that only 50 people are going to read? And also I could get, get paid for writing books if I write other genres. Like, why would I do that to myself? So I ended up deciding last summer to just write a folklore book and make it accessible to everybody, have the general public as my audience. I decided to self-publish because I have absolutely no chill and I didn't want to wait around for a traditional publisher to say yes or no or maybe. And so I took a lot of the existing essays and blog posts I had written and I wrote some new stuff and I kind of bundled it up in such a way that I hoped that somebody could read the book from start to finish and get almost the equivalent of a college course, like almost, or they could pop around throughout the various chapters, read what interested them the most, come back to it later, find some resources for further research if they wished. So I really wanted to write a book that would be accessible to people, that people could connect with, that they could enjoy and learn from in a variety of ways. Like maybe this will be assigned in someone's intro to folklore course at the college level. Maybe someone will read it in their book club. Just I wanted to have a lot of possibilities for people to engage with this work. And, and there certainly are plenty of possibilities. And the book itself is split into into different um sections which which examine a lot of different areas of folklore um from the basic concepts through through to different genres and categories um one one of the things that you talk about a little bit in in the first section of your book is field work something that by your own admission you don't do as much of as you would perhaps like to do i think this book is aimed at lots of different people, but I think a, a, a wide cross section of people who who would get a lot out of this book are people who can engage with folklore day to day and do that sort of fieldwork. Now, fieldwork is something that was so important to folklore um, through, sort of kind of throughout the twentieth century, and and we're in the fortuitous position of having so much information now because of the field work that was done by people then. Um, what would your advice be to people who kind of read through your book and look at the different concepts and go, oh, do you know what? I'm interested in 
I don't know, whatever, you know, customs, or I'm interested in uh, folklore and food or costume or whatever. How, how would you advise people to take that interest forward through uh, the the things that you write about, which, which will certainly teach them a lot, uh, but then in such a way that they can do that kind of field research and, and ultimately benefit everybody in the future, I guess? Yeah, um, I would I would say I, I think I include a couple of resources at the end of the fieldwork chapter with some some more instruction. But if you could link up with somebody who is a more experienced field worker and just sort of get some basic guidance, like if you actually want to publish what you're finding, you probably have to have some kind of informed consent form and think things like that. Just, you know, th think ahead to what your eventual goals are. If you just want to wander around and have really cool conversations with people. Awesome. Do it. There's no reason you couldn't do that right now. Um, but if you have some kind of eventual goal for whatever you want to be collecting, then you have to think ahead to are there ethical or legal concerns that I should probably keep in mind from the start. Um, well, one of the reasons I haven't done a ton of field work recently is that I haven't really had a stable university position until recently. And in the US, we have to go through the institutional review board to make sure that we're uh, being good about our ethics in any situation, which of course it's important to be ethical. Um, but without a lot of stability, I wasn't sure like, should I file at this university? But what if I go to another university? What happens to my field work permissions? I don't know. So I would say just to kind of understand like what your goals are so that you can maybe get advice from somebody or try to figure out how to move forward with that in a way that is ethical and also lays the groundwork for if you do want to eventually publish something. Um, you can also dig around in archives for what's been collected in, in a similar sort of um, genre or similar topic and see what's already been done. Like that, that's one fun thing is to always um, see the, the sort of pre-existing tradition that's already been documented and then kind of see how it's been updated recently. Thinking again about um, the internet and about digital folklore uh, along this same way, one, one of the beauties of folklore, I guess, is in many ways its accessibility. So even if you're unable to go out and do field work in that way, you can't get to archives, you can't travel you might have mobility issues and you might be housebound. Um, you, you know, there could be a variety of reasons. You can still engage with all of this, of course, digitally. Um, in her TED talk, Lynn McNeil, who we mentioned earlier, described the internet as kind of the world's largest unintentional folklore archive, just uncatalogued. Um, how can people perhaps pick up on some of the themes that you go into in your book and apply that online to still do that sort of work? Yeah, well, there are multiple genres online. I think people go towards memes and image macros because they're visual and it's very easy to identify those when you see them. There are, there are whole websites devoted to collecting them, making them, analyzing them, all the things. So uh, memes, I think, are also pretty easy to find in the sense that once you find them, you can sort of click to save one to your computer so you can kind of look back on it. Uh, my word of advice, if you do that, I learned this one the hard way, make sure you also make a note either in the file name or somewhere easy to find about the date you collected it and the source. 
that's my little hot tip right there. Um, but also, yeah, I completely agree with McNeil. There are so many kinds of folklore online. People are sharing personal narratives. There are contemporary legends circulating. There are fairy tale retellings. I think there's an interesting argument about whether fan fiction is a form of folklore at this point. So um, there, are, there are tons of kinds of folklore out there. So um, you might start with something simple like memes because it's very easy to identify tradition and variation as you go. But really anywhere there's community, you'll find folklore. So it could be in Facebook groups and Instagram hashtags, um, tw Twitter hashtags that people follow every week. So there are a lot of possibilities for finding groups and then finding the folklore that they create and share with each other. You cover a lot of ground in your book. Um, you cover a lot of genres, um, some which you've obviously worked with through your own study, some which you haven't. Um, what are your particular favorite themes out of all of this lot? Hmm. I like how identity runs throughout the book. That's one of the things I enjoy thinking and talking about. Um, I took a PhD minor in gender studies, for example. So I think it's fun to collect and talk about folklore almost in a vacuum, just like, look at these cool texts. But also I think it's really important to connect them back to identity. Like whose folklore is this? Who is telling this? Who is not telling this? Um, and again, I, I maintain that folklore stays relevant and stays alive as long as it's speaking to people's concerns, values, anxieties, all those kinds of things. So I really tried to highlight in my book the connection of folklore to identity. Not that identity is some stable monolithic thing either. It can change. But I, I hope that that was something that was kind of um, obvious in my book, especially in the um, final section of the book, which is sort of about um, special topics. So I talked about folklore and gender in terms of women's folklore. I talked about children's folklore. I talked about um, disability and folklore. So just a lot of things that I'm very interested in, like, you know, who does this folklore exist for? Who does it serve? Who does it critique? And so I'm hoping that those threads came through. Uh, yeah, absolutely. At the end of your book, uh, you, where you wrap everything up in your conclusion, you ask another question, which which is, uh, having having learned everything about folklore, what should you then do with it? Um, and and you go on to offer some, you know, various bits of advice about further study and you know whether it's online sources and things like that. Where do you think most people who read this book will want to take things do you do you think that it's just a case that um it will give people a broader understanding of the world around them or, or do you think that this is going to spur people on to to do more with the subject i suspect it'll be a, a mix of readers and audiences so i think some people will read it and think that's cool i learned some stuff and then as they move through their daily lives in the future they'll just have little folklore antenna that kind of pop up and gravitate towards something that, oh yeah, that's just like what I read about. Okay, cool. Um, so I think, you know, that's more the um, uh, just sort of daily engagement end of the spectrum. I suspect some people will have picked up the book because they really want to know more about legends or myths or folk tales or jokes. And those people will probably track down some of the resources I recommend at the end of many chapters or in the conclusion. So I think some people will probably use it as a way to launch into further study. Um, 
If anybody has decided to pursue a folklore PhD after reading my book, I have not heard about it yet. Please tell me if you do. Um, but I'm just hoping to really inspire more, more thoughts and more conversations about what folklore is, how it's in our lives and, and why. I, I, and I think it does and will absolutely do that. Where are you going to take it next? Uh, you, you've written this book now. It's out there. You've you've put all your blog posts together. You've written a load more material around it. You've produced this wonderful book. Um, what comes next after 101? Well, I'm working on Fairy Tales 101. So that'll be its own sort of specific deep dive, but still accessible to everybody kind of a book. Um, I'm considering putting together a course on Teachable to accompany Folklore 101. So it won't necessarily be chapter by chapter, here's a unit, here's a unit. Um, it's gonna be something that you can use maybe in um, a classroom setting. If you're a teacher, you can take yourself through some self-study if you're on your own. Um, I have some friends who teach homeschool here in the US and they're always looking for more lesson plans with kids who are middle grade or high school grade, um, kind of wherever they're at. So. I would like to create sort of a, a broader education-based resource to accompany the book, but I'm not sure when I will have time for that. So right now the plan is definitely Fairy Tales 101, hopefully sometime this year. And as far as the rest, um, I just hope more people read Folk for 101, get interested. Maybe I could come talk to some book clubs about it. So I'm just kind of uh, playing it by ear and seeing how it goes. I'm sure they will. I mean, I was saying to you before we started recording as well, you know, the, the introduction, introduction to British folklore course that I run, which is a non-accredited course for, you know, open to anybody through Learn for Pleasure, which is a similar kind of website, I think, to the kind of things that you're talking about. Um, I shall certainly be adding it to my recommended reading list because I think it is a really valuable introduction to anybody for the subject. So, um, now that people have listened to what you have said about it and are hopefully thinking, do you know what, I really should read this book. And uh, absolutely, everybody, you really should read this book. It's very, very important. Um, where should they find it? Well, uh, as someone who is new to the adventure of self-publishing, I can tell you it's available on most online retailers such as Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Google Books, Apple Books, and so on. Um, so you can buy an ebook copy, you can buy a paperback. I think the hardback might only be through Barnes and Noble and one or two other places. Um, but really, uh, buy it anywhere you like, uh, request it at your local library if you like. Um, so I'm just trying to make sure it gets out to everybody. Excellent. I will put links on the website to uh, a selection of places where people can indeed go and pick it up if they want to copy. So check on the Folklore Podcast website on the page for this episode and you'll be able to link straight through and grab a copy very easily from there. Uh, what about your other online places, Gina? Where can people find out more about what you do? I spend too much time on Twitter. My Twitter handle is Foxy Folklorist, kind of a little cheeky sort of idea there. Um, and I recently started blogging for Only Sky, which is a new platform. It's media, news, um, video, podcasts, all kinds of things. So all of my uh, blog backlog has been transferred over to Only Sky. It's sort of news with a, a sort of a secular bent to ask questions about the world and the people who live in it. So I'm there as well. And I think that's about all of the exciting stuff I have going on. <laughs> Excellent. I will link to that too for people so that they can go and have a look. In the meantime, Gina, thank you so much for spending some time to come on and talk about your book. 
it's been lovely to have you here and i wish you the best with fairy tales 101 thank you and thanks so much for having me thank you thanks to gina for joining me to discuss the ways in which she works with the study of folklore and why it's important I highly recommend her book, Folklore 101, which I will certainly be encouraging students on my own Introduction to British Folklore online course to use as part of their studies. You can get a copy in print or ebook from many online retailers, and you can also find links to the book and to Gina's blog spaces on the page for this episode on the Folklore Podcast website. The Folklore Podcast is an independent podcast aiming to collect and preserve folklore materials for the future, alongside its other projects such as the Folklore Library and Archive and the Folklore Network. You can find out more about all of our work on our website at www.thefolklorepodcast.com. Please tell your friends about our content and share our posts and episodes in whatever online spaces you use. You can follow us on Twitter, at FolklorePod, and we're also on Instagram and Facebook. We try to avoid adverts in our shows to keep to the topics in hand, but this comes at a cost. If you want to help us continue, please visit www.thefolklorepodcast.com support, where you can find links to our Patreon page and other information. Thanks for listening. See you next time. <laughs>